As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. This is the second part of my chat with Casper Steinfeld. And if you haven't already heard the first one, then it's really worth going back and listening to that one first. In this episode, we chat about some of his non-racing achievements, which include his Viking crossings, which were no easy thing to achieve and where he had to wrestle with failure, and his recent Great Danish Paddle, where he circumnavigated Denmark in all conditions. We also talk about the annual Midsummer Vikings recently held in Copenhagen, where teams from all across the world compete over a 24-hour event. So here's the second part of my chat with Kasper Steinfer. So Kasper, uh, obviously you're, you're most known for your racing career across the world, but you have been on a number of adventures which show the huge diversity of conditions and different opportunities for adventure in and around Denmark. Could you just give us a, an overview of the Viking Crossings project? Um, yeah, so the, the whole Viking Crossing saga kind of started back in, in late 2016. Um, you know, it's, it's back to like the first moment I set feet on a stand-up paddleboard. It was, you know, I, I, I was aware at that moment that this is more than just a surfboard. This is a vehicle that you can mm. actually travel um, distance on. And like, you know, I, I started paddling up and down the coast and, you know, that led me into racing and, and you know, the rest of the story we've been through. But something that I was deeply fascinated by as a kid was the sagas of the Vikings and, mm-hmm. you know, the Vikings that uh, set sail and paddled out from Scandinavia and, you know, went all kinds of places over They went over and said hi to you guys. Um, uh, sorry. Yeah, about for that. a while. <laughs> That's yeah. all right. I, I, uh, I owe my uh, rugby club crest to the Vikings and uh, probably a, a fair slice of my ancestry as well. So uh, yeah, no offense taken. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the Vikings had quite an impact on Northern European history, but actually like much 
wider as well. And, and like I was always fascinated by the stories of their, especially their, you know, their warriors, but also they had maritime knowledge or like they, they at least jumped into some, some crazy situations like making it across the North Atlantic, mm-hmm. going down to the, like around Europe, down to the Mediterranean and like through all these rivers into Eastern Europe. So, so like their, their maritime achievements kind of had always like been in the back of my head. And I think when, when, you know, paddling, stand up paddling came about, I was intrigued by it. But it was first like in 2016 that I started really paying attention to, okay, there's more than just racing. And, you know, I started just looking at Google Maps and seeing what, what would be cool to do. And, mm. and that was when the first Viking crossing uh, to Norway came about uh, across the ocean of Skagerrak. Um, and the film's there on Red Bull TV. You, it's free. You can you can check that out. And it's a, a really powerful film. And um, I won't spoil the ending, but let's just discuss your first attempt. Well, we know you, you did it in the end, but let, let's just talk about your first attempt there. Because I think, you know, it, it's only a, a short part right at the very front mm-hmm. of, of the film. But I get the sense that it was something that you just learned a huge amount from and um and which really sort of pushed you you forward because uh, fa- managing failure you know mm-hmm. sometimes failure can be seen as a me- negative thing but you definitely saw that as, as a real positive just talk about that first attempt to get across the strait well well yeah because the key word was failure um you know i you know i i, I was so fascinated by adventure and you know i kind of came into the first crossing and you know the ocean of skagerrak is between denmark and norway uh, it's roughly 130 kilometers in a straight line. It's it's a n- notorious stretch of water because the currents are gnarly; they're ever changing, and the weather is this is just call it unpredictable. And I had basically, I, basically, I paddled that first attempt, and like I had been going for 16 hours, um, and I could see, I could literally see Norway out in the distance like 12 kilometers away. I could see the lighthouse from Christiansand looking at me. And I almost felt like I was, you know, I was tired and broken and the ocean was chaotic and I could hardly stand on my board. And I felt like I was Frodo and looking at the tower of Sauron, just, you know, staring <laughs> me down. Um, but ultimately what happened was I failed. Um, I reached a point where uh, I felt like I was on just an arm's length away. Uh, but the conditions had just deteriorated. Um, a storm had brewed and suddenly I could no longer stand in these choppy seas. Uh, I think we all know the feeling at some point, you know, where you just can't. Um, and I got hauled into the safety boat uh, next to me and, you know, it was too dangerous for myself and my team to follow, to follow through. So uh, failure is exactly what happened. Um I did not succeed on that first attempt. And I basically, when I got pulled onto the, the boat, I was sitting there uh, defeated, you know, because I had jumped into the project as I felt felt like the king of the ocean. You know, mm. I was a world champion. You know, I had my sponsors saying, yeah, you got this. My family was saying, you got this. And I felt like I had really disappointed a lot of people there. Um, and, you know, I had been cocky as well. You know, I told the, the team, like, yeah, yeah, make sure to put the champagne on ice. I'll be there later this evening. We'll celebrate. Mm. And no, 
that was not what happened. So I felt I was sitting there on the boat. And, you know, when you say, Simon, that I, I learned from failure, that was later. Like in that moment when it happened, it just sucked. Like, But someone on the boat um, was ahead of you, weren't they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so um, when I was sitting on the boat with like frozen fingers, because this was in the middle of winter as well, um, the the cinematographer, the director of what would then become the documentary film, his name is Peter Alstead. And I've known the guy for a long time. He's a funny guy, but he just comes up to me when I'm sitting there crying and he just says, Casper, don't cry, man. This is this is the best thing ever. Now you get to try again. And I just remember like part of me felt like I was ready to punch him, but I we ended, he ended up just hugging me and um but but it made sense what he 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 said because I think he was actually as a filmmaker struggling to actually find out what type of story is he going to tell if mm. you know because I was I had been challenged but it was only you know right at the end that it was too much so um so anyway uh, like a couple of months passed after that I, I got home and still kind of down but 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 pretty quickly actually some some thoughts started racing through my mind thinking well actually the maybe the weather conditions were actually not perfect on this day. Like I was probably not in peak physical shape either and navigation. Yeah. I probably could have done that better as well. Mm -hmm. So quickly, like I started realizing I had made some errors uh, in my approach. And at that point, like I felt that uh, I, I, I wanted to learn from my mistake. And I think I had the choice of either like, you know, uh, taking the whole experience packing it down into a box, putting a lock on it mm. and never looking at it again. That mm. was an option, but that would kind of just be like hiding something under the rug. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I definitely chose to face <laughs> the problems. And um, one year later, uh, the following winter, I was, uh, I was at it again uh, mm. a second time to, to try to learn from my mistakes. And, and that time it was a different story. Um, yeah, I don't even know really what to say. It was it was a it was a process I was in that really taught me a lot about you know the 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 beautiful thing about failure when it's when it's done not I don't want to say failed correctly, but like when you when you try to extract mm. um, as much as you can because a failure can be the most uh, the best learning uh, we all can have and. You know, I think it's it's regardless if you're a if you're a world class athlete or you're a, you know you're a business manager or you're a student at school, you know you have situations where you're asked to perform and 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 you know things just don't go your way, like you flunk an exam or a presentation goes bad. Mm. Um, it sucks and it really sucked in the moment for me when I was on that boat, but something good did come out of it, and uh, yeah. And it depends on the sort of label you put on the failure there. So you talked about how you are the king of the ocean. So that was obviously tied up with your own self-image. So therefore, mm -hmm. when things don't go well enough, then, um, you know, that, that squashes your self-image. And that's what a lot of people do with failure. They think, well, I'm obviously not good at maths mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. So I'll just put it away in that box and not deal with right. it. And if I don't touch it, I don't need to think about the fact that I'm not a master of the ocean. But uh, where you take it into a process, 
that's when you can start managing it. And it sounds like that's what you do. And you do a talk, don't you? You've been to schools and talked to kids about this whole process, because it's really important that kids, you know, understand that failure is just a moment of time. And and basically, you only really fail if you give up on what it is that you're working towards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, like, uh, I I didn't see it myself in the moment. Uh, Mm. Like, actually, the fact that Peter, the filmmaker was there, you know, helped actually me realize that what w- what is failure, um, and you know, I, I had the pleasure of of going out to schools to talk to kids about the concept, because um, like, I, and I see it myself when I look back through my my social media sometimes, uh, and I look at other people's social media. You know, we we are constantly bombarded with images of of happy happiness and success, and you know. Mm. Stand people standing on a podium lifting a trophy, and not that there's anything wrong with that. It's but it's one must understand that that is uh, just part of a bigger picture. Like there's a deeper story. Like even Michael Booth. When I look at Michael Booth, like he's one of the most fantastic athletes I see, and you know, successful in every single way. Uh, and it's fantastic to see, uh, and it's inspiring. But like I think all of us athletes. You know, we have whether it's performance inside the realm of competition or somewhere else, like there's a backside to the medal. Mm. And that's what I think the Skagarak film shows for me, at least, was that um, for for that project to succeed, uh, I had to really dive down and scrape the bottom. Mm. Um, and it's, it's it's fairly natural to do so. Uh I think it's kind of like there's there's all these sayings and all these cliches, but like you know the it is the journey that that comes to my mind, uh, the journey of of going through like like it, it taught the fact that I failed taught me so many valuable lessons, and I'm, I I feel like a like an old fart sitting here like oh this is this is how it is, but I'm happy that I failed. You know, talking about Michael Booth. So in my interview with him, there was one line that he said, which really stood out for me, which is, you know, he likes being a beginner at things. He likes Mm -hmm. working out the algorithm. I mean, when I was speaking to him, it was before his new arrival, but he was building a house. I mean, uh, talk about, you know, selecting challenges, but he just looks for those new opportunities because it's learning and it's figuring it out and it's getting through to the end of it. It's a problem solving um, exercise. Mm -hmm. So, so in terms of the Viking crossing, it didn't just stop at that point with Skagarak um, because last year in 2021, you got on your foil and your paddle and you did another crossing from um, from Denmark to Sweden. Prevailing wind, I presume, was sort of more or less in your favour there. It was, I think it was 123 miles, something like that, the Skagarak. Oh, no, hang Cat- on. Kattegat. Kadagat, there we go. <laughs> so uh, Denmark to Sweden on a foil, 123 kilometres, spectacular, look beautiful. You're coming through all the wind farms and so on, you know, unbelievable. Seven kilometres from the finish line. What happened there? Uh, that, seven kilometres before the finish line was when the real struggle started. Uh, <laughs> until then, it, it had been more or less like a walk through a candy shop, uh, mm. just most magical feeling of just flying across this ocean on a foil, like feeling that I was, I was cheating some laws of, of physics, but, um, you know, th- those last seven kilometers were just before touching down in Sweden. And 
some factors that were outside of my control uh, entered the arena. Um, the wind died. The wind just very quickly shut down. And to be able to power a hydrofoil in the, in the format that I was using it, um, and, you know, I was using it by having it under my stand-up paddle board and, you know, paddling onto a wave and then riding the, the swell in the ocean. Uh, with no wind, there's no swell. And suddenly I was left, yeah, 7K from the beach and with no other means of propulsion than my arms. Um, I was just sitting there kind of thinking, damn, like, why is it always like right before the finish that something happens? <laughs> I was like... I, mem- I was just remember, remember sitting there with the, and I had a following boat next to me, so I could have just mm. gotten on the boat. But there was, there was an element inside me that kind of like a little devil almost that felt, yes, now you really get to work for your, you know, your, your food, your sleep, your, your everything. So I, without thinking much more about it, I just laid down on my stomach and started, you know, paddling with my arms, uh, arm after arm, uh, the last seven kilometers and, I think I was on my stomach for like three hours, just, you know, with a little bit of spray in my face. And uh, it was, you know, adventure. Uh, mm. Adventure is also challenge. And, and that, like, I, I loved, like, of course, I dreamed of, like, riding my foil inside the bay in Sweden where I was going to land. Like, just slowly landing, like a plane touching down, lifting my arms shooting the champagne boom (laughs) but that's how we visualize and how we dream of it Mm. and the same like my norway crossing i didn't visualize it was going to end in a failure at first you know it's those challenges that just pop up along the way they're they make it interesting and uh anyway just to tie a knot on the the, the sweden expedition it was it, it was rough those last kilometers but but it like when i washed ashore it it felt good it felt uh, like you know I had been out on a adventure and and seen seen uh, stuff that really pushed me to a limit, and um, that's kind of all I can say. But but like kind of like you said, Michael Booth mentioning that you know it's it's picking up new challenges and new ways to learn. That was I, I very much recognize that I, mm-hmm. I have that same feeling of. Like when I decided to foil to Sweden, it was because it was something new. It was something I had to learn a new skill set to achieve. Mm-hmm. And uh, it felt really good. It felt really good when it when it succeeded. I bet in doing that, I know uh, Magnus, your coach, sort of went out to provide a bit of encouragement as well. Oh, so yeah. A bit of social, social support there. I don't know how you managed to do that seven kilometers because you must have uh, burnt more calories doing that bit than the, the, than the front end of it. I presume Red Bull was involved somewhere in there. There is a, 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 fair, uh, a fairly large amount of Red Bulls involved. <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> in imagine. Projects. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, but what goes to the story of uh, Kattegat? when I was about to reach Sweden on the foil was that when I was on my stomach, uh, like I was in a, you know, I, and it's funny how memory works, right? Cause like, I'm happy that you mentioned Magnus cause I kind of forgot it because like I, like all those tough moments, they, they don't always like, it's not what you remember. Like our mind has a selective memory mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, a survival mechanism. Like you, you, you sometimes remember the hard stuff. Sometimes you don't. But I remember being on my stomach, my arms are falling off and uh, like totally out of energy. 
then I see this, like mentally I'm about to just crack, but, but I remember seeing this, this small dot out in the horizon coming towards me from Sweden. And, uh, that was my coach Magnus. And I think he had been tracking me and, you know, he knows, he knows me better than anyone almost. And mm. once he heard I was on my stomach, he knew that he had to do what he could do to help. And so he just came out and, you know, gave me some moral support. And I just remember I hadn't seen him at that point because of COVID. Uh, I hadn't seen him for two years. And I remember we just hugged out in, yeah, in the middle of Kattegat and, and it was, it was emotional, like mm. tears just formed in my eyes. And, you know, when you can be so happy seeing someone that you haven't seen for a long time, mm. sh sharing a strong passion, um, that was a, that was a magic moment. It definitely was. And, and he's been with you, you know, like you spoke about Robbie Nash earlier on, your relationship with Magnus has been one that you, you've had for, for quite some time, all the way through your racing career. And I get the impression that... Um, he provided a bit of shape early, but you've kind of developed that relationship where everything's a bit more more fluid in terms of your your training approach. Would that be would that be fair, or is he a hard hard taskmaster? And if you're not down doing pull ups at uh, eight o'clock on a Monday <laughs> morning, then you're in trouble. He's uh well, it, it's yes and no. Um, like I started working with Magnus in 2012. Um. And, and, you know, he, he was the one that probably brought like he, he Magnus is Swedish and he comes from a background in cross country skiing and, and coaching and, and various other sports. But um, he's a paddler himself. But I think he kind of came in and brought me knowledge uh, of, you know, methodical training. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to methodical training of, you know, he made these fantastic training plans, you know, like like, you know, these great Excel, uh, Excel spreadsheets with all these colors and, you know, hours and like this and that and morning session, evening session, strength, um, you know, full package. And he came in, but, but what I always, and, and I think that's why we still work very well together today is because Magnus, like I was curious to learn from him, but he was just as much curious to learn from me mm. because this was new territory for him, you know, stand up paddling, I mean, he was intrigued by the body mechanics of how, you know, what muscle groups and techniques and equipment actually go into building a fast paddler. So in a sense, I was the guinea pig and he was, you know, the scientist trying to make sense of everything. I think what Magnus realized was um, I did not like I could function with like I, I am very methodical, but I'm also methodical inside a certain realm. And, you know, like I always play when I go on the ocean and I think just playing on around on a race board in the waves like I really loved that and like mm. for all my teenage years that was what I was doing every day when I could so I think Magnus realized that and he realized that just as important as it is to have a good you know uh, lactate threshold and you know to be mobile and and have mu muscle mass he also realized the value of you know the the balance skill set and the mm. ability to read water um so he like he gave me space to to incorporate that into my training so that's what in some like like some people will view it as a very loose form of training but i think it, like if i had gone all hardcore and just stick like stuck to flat water i probably would be a much stronger paddler 
but I don't think I would have been a better paddler. Put it yeah, like that. You would have been more one dimensional, wouldn't you, in that environment? And I think that's where stand up paddling is very different to other endurance sports because if there's um, a downwind drawn, you know, a prospect or if you've got, yeah. got some um, some waves out there, then you're going right. to want to go out and just develop your skill set because, you know, living in Northern Europe, those things don't come along all the time, really. You've got to take your opportunities where you can. Whereas if you're on a bike or if you're a runner or, you know, Nordic skiing, you know, that there's less variability, I guess, in terms of the, the training experience there. I mean, a headwind is a pain in the backside for a cyclist, but it, mm. you know, it doesn't have the same effect as it does on a, on a stand-up paddle order. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, it, it's it's interesting, like because we're still seeing it, it develop, and like I, I mean, it, it fit my mindset very well to make the most of the given conditions, but but also the fact that, like, if you had Magnus on here, he could talk from now until <laughs> tomorrow mm. about you know the positive aspects of stand up paddling, and like I I just think that like like you said, it's not one dimensional like it's it is multi-dimensional in the sense that like you can have conditions where it is completely flat you can have conditions where uh you need to change your equipment you need to change your style there's there's so many nuances to stand up paddle racing where where you know you, you can you can totally blow it by by approaching it as you know rocky balboa or you know like there, there's a t- there's a time place for everything and i think it's just interest like basically what magnus finds interesting is like we're we're we are over 10 years into stand-up paddling now and we still have not defined the optimum uh physical build for racing like look at it like a guy like you, you put connor baxter and michael booth next to each other like michael is so strong and so compact connor is tall and you know kind of rangy uh yeah. yeah, and, and it, it's just interesting that there's, you know, there, there's a functionality. This is the Sup FM podcast with my guest, Casper Steinfeth, and we'll be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continue to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Now for the rest of my conversation with Casper Steinfeld. And there's so little science out there. There was an Australian researcher who, I think back in 2015, did a whole load of different studies around stand-up paddleboarding and all the forms. And he's kind of stepped away from that as a topic. But there's definitely lots of studies to be carried out in the area of um, stand-up paddleboard science. I, I could pursue that one um, like you down various alleyways. Just to complete on the Viking crossing, though, it's a three-stage plan, isn't it, Casper? We've got the two crossings. There, there was an aspiration, or there is an aspiration, to do the North Sea, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a, a bit further. How's right. that going? Are you going to darken our shores again 
I don't know um, if I'll call it dark in your shores, but um, I'll... Uh... I, I was taking on the Viking um, uh, motif there, but no, I mean, we'd be very happy to have you. But what are the plans in terms of the North Sea um, crossing? Yeah, so, like, it's it's no secret anymore. I've It's a it's a three-part, or I don't know if it stops at three, but, but like, definitely the next step in the plan is, um, you know, the oceans of Skagarak, Kattegat are complete, and then the next basin of water... Uh, that the Vikings traversed is the North Sea. And um, like I'm, right now, I'm just kind of like openly thinking of, you know, I'm analyzing right now, mm. how the hell do I take this on? Because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a long distance. It's like seven, 800 kilometers of open water. And it's not just, it's not just open water. It's like, how do I say? It's like st- stable. It's like, consistently inconsistent mm. uh like in terms of wind and waves and like i don't know the short answer simon is i i don't know when i don't know how but um i have a dream of trying to crack that code of of crossing this legendary ocean um i don't know if it's going to be on a conventional stand-up paddleboard if will it be a modified one kind of like what chris burdish has been using mm-hmm. um assisted unassisted i'm I'm not sure yet but i'm like it's it but it's it's intriguing to mm. just let the thoughts roll and and you'd be probably better off going uk to denmark i guess as well that would but yeah would that spoil well, the fun for you doing it now nah i mean i always love coming home but um but i mean i either way i think mm. would, would work for me um it's it's the it's the body of water like like trying to understand how to cope with those conditions the best. Mm. Um, right now, I'm speaking with some top uh, meteorologists um, from from Vestas, uh, the Danish windmill company, and I have access to their data that we're we're trying to basically crunch the numbers right now and statistically look at what route uh, and what direction is is most advantageous. Uh, where it's it's a little bit more like back to the whole concept of chaos. It's like the wind will shift many times while I'm out there. The currents will change. Mm. Tides will shift. Um, so it's it's kind of like a Mount Everest for me is probably the way I would look at it. It's it's that mountain, may, maybe the final mountain I hope to climb. But uh, if it's if it's this year or next year or in three years, I don't know. But it's being worked on in, in the background there. It's part of the, the, the planning to, to complete it. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think maybe like in, in one sense, I feel I've already taken the first step towards it where, where this year when I did the, the Great Danish Paddle mm. around Denmark, um, you know, that was also kind of a, a test of myself to see how does my body work uh, when it's not just one day I'm paddling, but when it's, you know, multiple days consecutively in harsh conditions how um how do i how do i cope mentally and physically that was a uh, that was an interesting part of the mm. project but um yeah i don't know i'm kind of like shitting my pants right here just talking about this whole north sea business <laughs> <laughs> well you know i mean it's bits and pieces and coming back to our initial conversation about fear of the unknown it's about you know spending time on the water and that the chris mm. burtish conversation i had with him you know he again sort of 
you know, connected with so many of the things we've already discussed, but he spent so much time on the water in advance of his cross-Atlantic crossing. Mm. You know, he, he had managed so many different situations that had sort of pushed his level of comfort threshold right the way up. So, you know, if it's not right now, then it's, it's not right now, but it's just building up to that. But um, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm glad that I'm glad that's still on the agenda. So we'll definitely put your your trip from England to Newfoundland on the back burner for the moment after yeah. <laughs> after your North Sea trip. Okay, let, let's let's move on to the to the Great Danish Paddle. And one of the the surprising things that we found out when we were doing this podcast during the COVID lockdowns is that I, I was asking people what's your dream location when lockdowns finish but what people were actually doing is they were concentrating on local paddling and really right. rather than going sort of broad with lots of different locations and you know all of the, the the volcanoes and palm trees and so on it was all about what's happening in your local area mm-hmm. and really understanding it and people were getting a lot of satisfaction and mental health benefits from really going deep locally so I know that was the original spark or one of the original sparks for your um, great Danish paddle to check out some of your your local gems. I know that, what is it, the um, Danish Caribbean being one of yours. Just just tell us about your thinking processes about the great Danish paddle as a concept. Well, as as the concept kind of, you know, it, it was during COVID definitely that I also started, you know, realizing well, what what do I have? Where, where can I go? And you know that the whole the whole Denmark circumnavigation has had never been done on a stand up paddleboard. So obviously, I was personally motivated with the challenge aspect of it. Can it be done? Um, but I think the the thoughts that were going through my mind was very much, yeah. There's these places around Denmark that I have never visited. I have never seen. Uh, there's places that I'm curious about because I've heard about them, but I just, I think for me, it, it was trying to be able to connect with parts of my backyard. Uh, and when I say connect, it's not just look on a map and say, I know where this is. And I've read on Wikipedia what this island is known for. Um, it, like I was curious to go like uh, Im- immerse my senses of you know, feeling, smelling, tasting, um, and connecting memories in that way. So, so as going into the project, I had all these dreams and, you know, aspirations as to what the project would be. But I also knew from experience with the Viking crossings that, you know, generally, generally uh, dreams and expectations, they don't always really pan out as you expected. That was, that was also a beauty of this project. Um, Things didn't did not go as expected. So the Great Danish Paddle it was a simple project to start with. It was you paddleboard, a tent, um, a few supplies. Just talk about some of your experiences there, because it's kind of a bit of a definition of being comfortable with uh, discomfort. I know in one of your posts you were talking about being windburned, sunburned, and having your fingers frozen at, at the same time, and. Uh, at the very least, I guess it, it reminds you of the value of a dry place to sleep and a warm shower. Um, just talk about some of those experiences as you you went around. Well, as, as I got going, um, you know, all kinds of situations arose like, you know, the whole, I mean, first of all, the Great Danish Paddle. I, I got to say thanks to you guys over in Great Britain for letting me kind of borrow the name. Uh, that was Jordan Wiley there. I'm sure yeah, he will be very pleased to to hear yeah, that you've been following him. But yeah, he, he, him and uh, Brendan, they were both huge inspirations. 
but, but basically as I got going, you know, uh, unforeseen things kind of came up and, you know, the, 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 the crazy thing was that like within the first week of paddling, uh, I started out in sunny weather on the 2nd of April and, you know, April at these latitudes can mean halfway to summer or halfway to winter. And I literally had sunshine, gale force winds, snowstorms and rainstorms all within the first five days of the project. So like, yeah, it was sunburnt and uh, had numb fingers uh, at the same time, which was uh, bizarre. But but it was, you know, I think it was a it was a rough start to the whole project. But as I got going, like I had divided all of Denmark, you know, into sections and the whole distance being approximately 1400 kilometers. I really tried to just divide it into sections and, and, you know, make mile, uh, what do you call it? Like mile posts of, mm. uh, you know, to keep myself, you know, enthusiastic and motivated. But, um, but it, it just became so real, like, you know, from, from the snowstorm on day five to crossing the top of Denmark where the two oceans meet, um, paddling through Copenhagen with an entourage of, of uh, 40, 50 paddlers and, you mm. know, going down to Southern Denmark to the cliffs of moon, uh, and, and the Caribbean crevasse with islands. Like I was island hopping, uh, almost forgetting that I was on a mission. Um, and, and just, there were so many things in between that just turned it into, um, you know, uh, as, as probably as, you know, Hans Christian Andersen, the famous Danish uh, writer would call it, you know, just a proper adventure, <laughs> fairy tale. And Brendan Prince and Jordan on, on their journeys talked a lot about the people that they came across on the way mm. and you know the support that they get and the interest. Some of the areas that you went to were quite desolate, but as you said, you must have had a bit of that going around. Well, well, I mean, definitely meeting the Danes was part of my motivation as well, you know, to, you know, meet the people and also give myself the time to meet the people where, you know, generally when I, like when I go somewhere for a project or an event, it's very, you know, you have very limited amount of time to interact with people. And, and I think uh, that was, I was hoping to have time to properly listen to stories and, you know, embrace the spontaneous. Mm. Um, And like I was shocked because I set out with a tent and camping gear expecting to, you know, pretty much just camp. But um, it was funny, like just, you know, randomly you, I met someone on the beach or in the harbor saying like, oh, uh, we have an extra couch or we have an apartment you can borrow. Um, and that's kind of what I'm missing right now. Like I'm, I'm sitting here at home just, uh, you know, in my own place, but but there was something special about those people mm. that, you know, I had no like formal connection to, but like they got inspired by the adventure and, you know, suddenly uh, a conversation on the beach leads to a warm meal, sometimes a hot shower and a place to sleep. Um, it, it was, I think in short, it was special to be reminded of people's, you know, People are willing to help. People are willing to go out of their way um, when there is a, not a good reason, but you know, when, how is it I'm saying like, we, we all, like you and I, we all live busy lives, like, but when, when someone comes knocking on our door uh, and has like a, a wild story and 
Yeah, like, and indeed, it's a community, and again, our sort of primitive drive for security, yeah. uh, for society and connection, and and all of that sort of stuff. And actually, people think that it's the giver giving. You know, sometimes they get something from helping someone else who, who's mm. in need, and I think that's really important thing. You know, for us to consider in the current times that we live in, where everything's so sort of polarized. Exactly. You know, we're all human beings. We're all on the planet at the same time. Uh, hopefully, that I haven't got too hippified in there but uh, you kind of get get the sense of where, where i'm going to and and, no, and I, you know, I, I i got yeah, that I, sense of con- that sense mm, of connection mm, like exactly. it, that's a human need as well and mm. I, I think especially after covid you know we all kind of got into our own little bubbles and and i think now we're seeing like everyone's just kind of exploding to mm. go go connect with people and, and that was probably my explosion right there like getting to to see and connect and meet Amazing. So I've got other questions on here. One about the world's largest Toblerone bar, which you picked up at the uh, the border post. Um, <laughs> I had a lot of questions about that, but we'll just skip over those ones for the moment. And then you did a you you stuck your board on a trolley and carried it uh, a fair old distance. But uh, in terms of that last day coming in to your starting point, just tell us about that experience because it was. Uh, was it sun shining on the righteous? Did you downwind most of that day? Or was on, that... on the final day? Yeah, or the, or the day. It was a couple of days before. It, it, you looked like a hollowed out man there. You had a huge beard. You were clearly expended quite a few calories, but you had the odd downwinder on, on the way back, didn't you? T- just tell yeah. us about, about that and sort of coming into the, to the finishing stage. So, so like coming into the finishing, yeah, the finishing stage was, um, you know, the, the west coast, mm. the west coast of, of Jutland. Um, and how would I best describe it? It was like the summit stretch of a mountaineer going for the top of the mountain. And I knew that potentially this stretch of coast could have been the most, you know, uh, not dangerous, but the most, you know, problematic at mm. least because uh, you're exposed to all the west wind and waves. Uh, I knew that there was a good chance I was going to have a lot of problems here. So actually, like, even though there's those pictures of me looking completely hollow and just, you know, like a ghost, um, I, at that point, I actually, I had made a point of saving energy. Um, mm. And like, I had always told myself that until I reach the West Coast, I need to operate at 80%. Like, you know, don't give everything you got, save it, save something. So you always have 20 or 15% left in the tank because you don't know when you're going to need it. It could be an unforeseen circumstance. It could also just be a really shitty weather forecast. Um, mm. But when I made it to the West Coast, the bizarre thing was that I had the most perfect uh, for- weather forecast in front of me. Um, just like three days of downwind, which is like bizarre because that statistically is so rare to get, right? On, on that point. And I remember just feeling, almost feeling the pressure there that, okay, well, to cover like, you know, it was like still 250 kilometers or something, 300 kilometers in, in, in a few days is a lot. So um, I got to work and, you know, it just, I don't even know how to really describe it. It was, it was magical. Like there was times where on the West coast, I just felt like, damn, like the conditions are so good. And I feel so alive and I got this feeling of like, I was actually not happy. Like I was actually bummed because that means 
it's going to be over soon. Like mm. every stroke I was taking was bringing me closer to my finish line. And, you know, when it's like watching a, a TV show that you just are so immersed in and like, you love the characters, you love the, the, the tempo and everything. And, but soon enough, it's episode 10 and the show is the season's over. So it was bittersweet making mm. it to the end. It was sweet because, you know, I got to come home to my family. I got to come home to my fiance. Um, and it was bitter because, you know, I just, uh, I was so in love with this adventure of, you know, being immersed, uh, and dealing with simple things like, you know, like we, like I, now I'm sitting at home in front of my laptop and there's all the, the existential things about paying bills and, uh, you know, fixing things. And, you know, it's, when I was paddling, at least everything was so concrete. It was, you know, waking Simple. up, making sure I ate. Was I warm enough? Paddle. Like, you know, just life was simple. And uh, I guess I I, guess I, I, re I really felt comfortable there. Yeah. Makes life a, a bit more uh, simple if you're focusing on, on those things. So, Casper, coming out of it, obviously you had a, a huge Viking-style beard, which... I was rather surprised you didn't keep for the <laughs> midsummer Vikings. Actually, all it needed was a horned helmet and really completed the picture. <laughs> but in terms of your physical conditioning coming out of it, what, what were the, the physical changes? I mean, I guess if you were doing this as a training exercise, you certainly mm. would have built your aerobic threshold through you know mm, constant mm. days of grinding out those those miles. But uh, do you lose any weight and muscle, or do you notice anything? Um, well, the, the takeaway physically was. Uh, very kind of mixed um, because I, I like I, I had a beard. Uh, that's right, and you know I, I think part of me was sad to let the beard go, but I, I was getting to a point where uh, I don't know if I feel Viking enough to actually carry it, and it, and it was scratching a lot. Yeah. I was having a hard time eating, um, but um, but it, it'll come back. I'll let it grow again. But but I think physically the biggest uh, puzzle was because everyone kept pointing out that, um, you know, I was expecting to burn around five, 6,000 calories a day at least. And I was so focused on eating and everyone kept pointing out, like, you look, you look slim. How much weight have you lost? That was the most common question. And you know what the weird thing is? I actually did not lose any weight on the trip. I actually put on like a kilo and a half and you know that anyway, a kilo and a half could have just been fluid. Like I mm. could have been dehydrated when I weighed in, and you know, properly hydrated when I came back. But I think I was so focused on eating. Mm. Um, plus, I had a very protein-rich diet, and given the fact that I had thirty kilos of weight on my board, I think I built on. I and this is strange, like. Magnus and I were still trying to make sense of it because I put on a little bit of muscle mass. Like I didn't come home super buff, but I didn't lose as much as expected. So, um, so it was strange. Like, um, I, I definitely think it showed me that I, I pushed some limits and I, I pushed it further than I've gone before. Mm. But I also learned that I did not hit my limit. Like I could have probably kept going. Um, and that was actually an interesting revelation because everyone just assumed that when I came back, I was going to be smashed and, you know, not functional of anything. 
so, so it was, you know, I, I had a, I had a sore body. Um, my, my shoulders were a little bit, um, how'd I say, you know, they're, they were pushed. Um, mm-hmm. and I had a little bit of issue with one of my knees. Um, I think I needed, yeah, there was, there was something with some ligament that was under pressure, but I was expecting it was going to be a whole lot worse. So I'm sorry. It's not the whole, uh, I hit my limit story, but, um, no, no, we're more than happy to hear that Casper <laughs> uh, looking out for the next challenge. It's quite amazing. So, so just in terms of what's been going on for you recently, we've just had the Midsummer Vikings and uh, I was down at one of the GB SUP races on Saturday and uh, spotted the logo on a couple of people there and spoke to them. And it sounds like this year it's been, you know, as much of a success as has been in other years. I know that there was some proper Viking weather to contend with as part of that as well. Just, right. just talk us through the, the event because like the 11 cities, it's a, a bit of a, a different format in terms of stand-up paddleboarding, but it, again, it, it sort of harnesses some of that sort of collegiate, collective team atmosphere, and it is a proper workout as well. I think I worked out that uh, on the basis of the the miles that the competitors had completed, that was enough to go at least six times around Denmark. So, uh, and and that was obviously some <laughs> of the time on the water lost. This is how much of a geek I am. So, just just talk us through it. the Midsummer Vikings and this last week or a couple of weekends ago. Well, um, I mean. The, the Midsummer Vikings, um, this is the third edition of the event, um, as it happened this year. We had, uh, we had 400 participants from 21 different countries on 82 different teams. And if you rewind for a second, the Midsummer Vikings came about um, actually after the, my first attempt of crossing, after the second attempt of crossing uh, Skagerrak and the Viking crossing. It was an idea uh, I came up with um, together with a few other of my friends, uh, paddlers at home in Denmark. And, you know, we kind of, we felt that the world of stand-up paddling needed, um, you know, different styles of events. And especially at that point in 2019, there was, you know, stand-up paddling was already starting to boom. uh, And we wanted to create a team event. Uh, because there's plenty of events out there where, you know, it's the individual that fights. But if there's one thing I learned from my trip over over to Norway on the Viking crossing, it was that um, I was only capable of doing that because I had a good team around me. And that was kind of what I wanted to try to bring with the event was to, you know, help people push, help each other support uh, one another with pushing boundaries. And, you know, that was the concept uh, and still is the same concept today. You know, teams of up to five people. Uh, One person is constantly paddling around the course, which is in Copenhagen. It's five, roughly five and a half kilometers long. Um, And it's, you know, a location that's excellent because it's, there's a little bit of, of calm, flat water. There's a little bit of exposed, slightly choppy waters. Um... And, you know, the, it's, this is the third edition of the event and we're still like committed to it being like, I'm just happy to see it an event that brings out happy faces mm. and seeing people that otherwise wouldn't show up to a stand up paddle race, suddenly part of an event that, you know, is a fat, is a festival essentially. Um, and yeah, I, I, 
I'm still kind of uh, on a, how do I say it? I'm feeling the blues right now, both after the Danish paddle, but also the Midsummer Vikings. And yeah, yeah it's just, it, I had a dream of creating an event that was, you know, provided something different and, you know, could be a team, a team thing. And uh, I feel like we're on a good track. Definitely. And what you've just mentioned is, you know, the post expedition blues, I guess people call it, you know, you've got all of these mountains to climb and then you've achieved them and then you're over. I mean, you had the Midsummer Vikings, I guess, which potentially lessened the Great Danish Paddle Blues, but you've got obviously a huge landmark event and obviously your culinary responsibilities for your your wedding coming up. So um, you don't want to mess that one up, but what else have you got coming up over the, the next few months and what can we look forward to seeing you doing? Well, um, yeah, so, so I have my wedding coming up in the middle of August, which is, is the next, you know, thing I'm really looking forward to. Um, my fiance, Steen and I, uh, you know, we're having a party inviting friends from around the world and, you know, it's, that's kind of, yeah, it's just something I'm excited for because it's a celebration of life mm. and, um, to be honest, like, what can we look forward to from here? Um, I'm probably going to be racing again late in the year. Uh, we'll have to see what my body and mind is is up mm. for because uh, I'm pretty spent right now. Yeah, um, but, I, you know, once I get some time here during the summer to, you know, get properly, you know, uh, down to, to the earth again and, you know, recharge the batteries, I have a feeling that, you know, it's, how do I best describe it? Like, I can feel tired and, like, not motivated to do anything but as soon as my batteries start recharging mm. it's like these small wheels start spinning and like ideas start popping up so um yeah we'll see probably not a big expedition the rest of the year but um i'll be planning something for next year and hope i hope to do a lot of events uh like in the later part of this year where maybe it's not so much racing in focus but you know focus on going to some fun events and mm. you know like like you said maybe paddle through some cool locations and actually enjoying the scenery and meeting people and talking stories we're um oh i guess on that note we are uh, we're finishing a documentary film about the great danish paddle mm -hmm. that i hope to release and uh, tour around with but that'll probably first be next year so um Amazing. yeah and and you shared as well. You recorded all of your experiences as you as you went round. Is that going to be a a book, or or are you just still processing that? Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting with a book right in front of me here. It's just <laughs> a it's just a simple notebook. But um, there's I there's a lot of just my first hand accounts when I wrote my diary during the the Great Danish Paddle, and I don't know what it's going to turn into, but um, I have a feeling. I want to try writing a book. I want to mm. try sharing some of these, you know, small and big events along the the ride of my life. But but especially during the Danish the Danish paddle, uh, I got to meet a lot of people that that had a very strong impact on me, and you know, made me kind of start thinking about life and you know how do I want to what how do I want to spend my life, but also like what values you know, mean something to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I'm in a place right now where a lot of wheels are spinning in my head, but, um, but that's usually a, an interesting that's phase to be in. 
and, and opportunities and so on come out of that. And uh, there's been a huge amount of physical and, and mental outlay that you've put in both in your racing career and your exploration. So it's kind of just going with it. And as you said, you know, that the path will open out in front of you. I've got, got no doubt whatsoever. Casper, thanks for being so generous with your time. It's been a really fun and, and a fascinating chat and look forward to catching up with you in person if if you are in London in August. Uh, I don't think anyone who can't Google something wouldn't be able to find out more about you, but uh, if they happen to have lost that ability, how could they connect with you online? Follow me on uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much the two outlets I'm using. But um, yeah, I hope to see a lot of people at events this year and, you know, yeah, check out uh, the Skagerrak uh, documentary film if you haven't seen it yet. It's on uh, Red Bull TV for free. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just stay tuned. Like, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure something is going to happen. But uh, first of all, let's enjoy summer. Absolutely. Casper, um, thanks so much again. All of those links will be there in the show notes. Congratulations on such a stellar career so far go well this season and I know I can comfortably speak for the entire SUP tribe internationally and I wish you all the best for a fabulous wedding and a celebration this summer. Take care and I'll see Thanks, you on the Simon. water hopefully at some time. Thanks Simon. Thanks everyone. <laughs>